Welcome to the Asquith Hour, episode 22. The past 10 days have seen interesting stories and events in the UK and Israel that raise questions of identity for dual citizens like me. In the UK, the passing of Philip the Duke of Edinburgh, and in Israel, Holocaust Memorial Day, Israel's Remembrance Day, and of course, Israel's Independence Day. In this episode, we'll discuss identity and what it means to be a citizen. Enjoy. There's a global fascination with the concept of royalty, and the British royal family are probably the most famous monarchs of all. I'm often asked what I think of them, and whether I'm a royalist. Overall, I would call myself a pragmatic royalist. I don't believe that they are the incarnation of God on earth, or that they have a divine right to rule. But that doesn't mean that they don't play, and shouldn't play, an important part in the affairs of state. The role of monarchy in the UK has been evolving for several hundred years, starting from arguably the Magna Carta, and it's still, to some extent, a work in progress. There's a question as to what the state owes to the royal family in terms of the privy purse, which is essentially the budget that we give to have a functioning and working monarchy and royal family, and what in turn we expect back from the royal family. I think it's quite clear that we all have a great affection for the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, and especially we can see some of the stories that have come out about how hardworking he was as a royal for really as long as he could physically cope with doing so. And of course, we're more than aware through the tabloids of those members of the royal family who are perhaps a little less forthcoming in their sense of duty. And with the Harry and Meghan saga, we can see what happens when modernity butts into what's obviously an extremely historical institution with ingrained ways of doing things that perhaps need to be slightly more open to change, but equally must maintain some kind of structure or it ceases to be anything like what it was designed for and what makes it so special. I think people are unaware and perhaps are now being made slightly more aware, both through the Harry and Meghan story and the passing of the Duke, as to exactly what the royal family actually does with its time and with its money. The various working royals are the heads of hundreds and hundreds of charities, and they are also a vital weapon in the armoury of British diplomacy. That's to say that they are an extension of the British government and of the interests of the British state, and they represent the UK abroad in a huge variety of ways. Schmoozing businessmen, getting to know politicians, philanthropists, all sorts of things. So, for example, whilst people were scandalised that Prince Andrew spent all of this time with Jeffrey Epstein, and for sure he should have perhaps worked out that Epstein was not a particularly salubrious character, Prince Andrew was actually supposed to be getting to know those kind of people because Andrew at the time was the trustee or the honorary head or, or some other such capacity of several hundred UK charities, all of which needed philanthropists to support them, and that was part of his role as an envoy of the United Kingdom. Within British politics, whilst the Queen is not ever going to withhold realistically her sent from any particular policy that the government wants to promulgate that has the backing of Parliament. In practice, 
the weekly meetings that the Prime Minister and the Queen have are not just the token affair. Reports are, and of course these meetings are very private, but reports are that, that there is serious discussion about policy in those meetings. The Queen is immensely well briefed and she's carrying with her the institutional memory of hundreds of years of British parliamentary democracy and of the rule of law in the UK as we understand it. And that knowledge is imparted to the Prime Minister and the Queen is there as a guide. And I think that this is something that we throw away at our peril. The alternative to having the Queen play that role is to have somebody elected, probably from the political class. And I question whether that would really be so much better in terms of safeguarding the interests of the population and of a society as a whole. The problem comes when you have an irresponsible monarch. And thank goodness the Queen has proven to be a fabulous leader. And I think people belittle Charles without really understanding who he is and what his background is. He's a surprisingly dynamic and insightful thinker. This is somebody who was engaging on matters such as the environment, uh, the way that Islam was operating in the modern society, what we should do about architecture and the way in which we should balance the interests of today's society and the buildings they need with the necessity to preserve our history. All sorts of things that, that now we take for granted, that for him, he was seen as this quirky man, slightly eccentric, and he was rambling about all of this kind of stuff in the 80s and 90s. And it turns out that actually these are quite serious matters. So I think we have probably not done him any justice, and I think he will also turn out to be somebody who rules with appropriate wisdom and understanding. Of course, the monarchy is also a direct money spinner. People come to the UK because we have a living, working, functioning monarchy and visiting Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and so on as places where the royal family do actually reside carries a lot more value than going to visit the palaces of long dead royals in other countries. And as I said, there is a huge trade bonus that we get because we have this team of envoys who represent the UK alongside our diplomats and politicians and trade commissioners and so on. And that's something that's, that's very unique. So on balance, I would judge myself to be a pragmatic royalist, as I said. And I'm really touched and, and sorry about the passing of the Duke of Edinburgh. I think we all see the Queen and the Duke as a sort of extension of, of our own family. They're that extra layer of grandparental comfort. They're something we've all become incredibly used to because of their longevity and because they also seem to be interesting and really human individuals. And that's quite hard to do when you're in that kind of position. I think the thing that we tease the Duke over for all these years about how he says the most inappropriate things are exactly why we're all fond of him, because he says what everyone's grandpa might well blurt out, and he's not embarrassed to do so. But he did so with a sense of duty and forbearance. This is somebody who sacrificed his opportunity to live his own free life to be a wonderful consort to the Queen. And I think that's something that, that we should recognise, is that this is somebody with a deep sense of humanity. And we can forgive many of his generational quirks. So I mourn his passing. I think it's a sad day. I think he's a fascinating character and I don't need to go into too much of his personal history. It's easy to read it online, but he's somebody who also was known to have an affection for the Jewish community. He came from a background where part of his family very much did not. And he broke ranks with them. And alongside his mother is somebody who I think we should recognize had our backs.
it's times like these when I'm really aware of how British I still am, even after 11 years of not being resident in the UK. Now that in turn brings us to Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day of a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned that there were some connections of the Duke of Edinburgh to Jewish history and specifically to the Holocaust. His mother, Princess Alice, sheltered a Jewish family in Greece during the war and was recognized at Yad Vashem as one of the righteous Gentiles. And she's even buried on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Philip himself had an affinity with Jews and was taught by a Jewish refugee. The less said about some of his siblings, the better, I think. And so to my second identity, standing in Israel on Yom HaShoah, on Holocaust Remembrance Day, and seeing the streets come to a halt as we remember one of the reasons why the state exists, which is to make sure that such a thing never befalls us again, but also then to think about what our obligations are as a society to try and make sure that it also doesn't happen to anybody else. And there's an interesting question for me of identity. Luckily for me, all of my family was long out of Europe before the Holocaust. So whilst it's of course a profound human tragedy and a specific Jewish tragedy, it's not one that touches me quite as personally. And it's interesting to reflect on what that means. So I mourn with everybody else because I think of the lost lives and the lost opportunity that we had to be an even more thriving community and to be more spread all over Europe and to be able to be an influential part of all of these other societies with all of the magic that Jews seem to be able to bring to whichever society that they're in in any serious number. And that's these countries' loss and the world's loss as much as it's our loss as a community. So then comes the question of, well, what are our responsibilities? Because from the ashes of the Holocaust, we had Israel. Whilst I'm still a proud Israeli citizen, I'm actually no longer resident here. I spend most of my time outside Israel and I travel the world and I have an opportunity to assimilate into many other cultures. I speak better French and Spanish than I speak Hebrew, even after 11 years of being here, for example. And I definitely feel on a cultural level more at home in Buenos Aires than I do in Tel Aviv, for example. So I think there are layers of identity. I find that it's also something that affects my own happiness and my mental well-being. I've found it very, very stressful to try and be an Israeli. It's a culture that I find in many ways very alien. It's an extremely Middle Eastern place, although Tel Aviv gives it the veneer of being part of Western society. And I think that when I came here, my impression was that this was going to be this happy medium. And in fact, when I think about why I love being in cities like Buenos Aires or Athens, it's because they're also cities on the cusp. Buenos Aires is in Argentina, but not of Argentina in many ways. Argentina, in turn, is in Latin America, but it's not really of Latin America. And I feel the same about Israel. I think that Tel Aviv is well known as the bubble within Israel. And in turn, Israel is in many ways an implant in the Middle East of many other values. And it's learning to cope with its dual identity, that half of its citizens come very clearly from outside the Middle East and half of its citizens very much are from here. And of course, 20% of its citizens are not even Jewish and they have their own extremely complex identity decisions to make. Of course, all of these feelings come to a head with the way in which we honour the fallen who have got us here as a modern state on Yom Hazikaron, the Remembrance Day, 
and the way in which that morphs immediately into Yom Ha'atzmaut, Independence Day, which were this year Tuesday night Wednesday and Wednesday night Thursday. This year, I think there was an added poignancy in the way in which we turned to that moment of celebration because we are coming out of the pandemic and it was the first day that people were really on the streets, most people not wearing masks, people feeling relaxed, and there was a real palpable sense of relief and joy in the air and it was just a, a very special day to be here and although, as I say, I'm no longer a resident here, I'm thrilled to still be a citizen and to still be able to come to take part in those kind of moments. It was very, very special. But I have a huge sense of relief and I feel much less stressed because I now am viewing Israel slightly more as an outsider again, in the same way as I loved Israel before I moved here. And in the same way as I can go to Argentina or Greece or France or anywhere else and be an observer. As a non-citizen, I'm really detached. As a citizen but non-resident of Israel and the UK, I have a great affection. It's a place where I care a lot more. But now that I don't live in these countries full time, I'm able to just take that one step back. And I'm not carrying this huge burden of the need to be a part of trying to drive these societies forward in ways which seem to conflict with the way in which most other people want to take those societies forward. And indeed, I recognize and respect that now that I'm not making my home in these countries, it is not my prerogative to try and tell them how to lead their lives or to try and show them something that I think is a better way. It's for the majority to decide and I have to accept that. And on that basis, I will either spend more or less time in those societies. Yom HaZikaron, the Remembrance Day, is a particularly interesting test of this Israeli identity because for those of us who came too late to serve in the army, we are missing a big piece of what it is to get your stripes as an Israeli citizen and to be fully accepted in many ways. I'm also quite fortunate, I suppose, to know nobody who died in any of the wars and I have one acquaintance who died in a terrorist attack and so the day feels very slightly remote to me as well much like Yom HaShah even after living in this country for all of this time. It therefore takes a conscious effort to engage in what Yom HaZikaron represents and this year, bizarrely, it actually came from a stupid online Facebook debate in a group of people who are looking to spend time outside Israel, much as I have, bizarrely. And there was an Arab with Israeli citizenship in this group who picked a fight with me because I was pointing out a flaw in some argument that somebody had made to do with the demographic shifts in Israel. And we ended up having quite a heated debate which ended up with him wishing me Yom Ha'atzma'ud Sameach, a happy Independence Day, and me wishing him that one day there might be a second Yom Ha'atzma'ud between the river and the sea. So it was quite an interesting moment that, again, got me thinking about the nature of identity, and that this is a, an Arab guy in an English-speaking group looking to get out of Israel, but who, when push came to shove, was working out how to hold his dual identities of an Arab and an ethnic Palestinian, as he would see it, as well as being an Israeli citizen, and also looking to escape both of those identities and move somewhere else. These are things that I think we're going to have to get increasingly used to in the Western world. We have accepted the idea of mobility within countries, 
and the European Union has certainly promulgated the concept of mobility within Europe and it's one of the big points of contention and tension around Brexit to do with who is going to be allowed to go where and on what basis. I found it very interesting that I'm in an expats group in Athens, for example, on Facebook, where there are really heated discussions about the rights of UK citizens living abroad and that they want their right to vote and they want their right to renew their driver's licenses in the UK and they want all these rights and people like me are saying well but you've chosen to become expats why do you think you're still entitled as if you were still residents and this is a very anti-Brexit group and their view is that the UK's job is to preserve their right to not live in the UK which I find quite difficult. My view of it is that you can try and take advantage of some of the rights that you have as a citizen, but they are not absolutely given rights. There are certain things that I think are sacrosanct. So, for example, I was very outspoken about how disappointing it was that the Israeli government abandoned citizens abroad, and that I count myself really apart from that group, because I recognise that as a non-resident I probably don't have the same right to be rescued or looked after by the government, but the vast majority of people who were stranded in the last couple of months, they really needed to be looked after and, and it was a failure of the duty of care of a state towards its citizens, and indeed that is what was upheld by the Supreme Court in itself in a very scathing judgment. I've become a very big fan of The Nomad Capitalist, which you can look up on YouTube and his website. It's a very interesting concept to do with how we are these days capable of much more mobility, obviously some of us more than others. I, as a Westerner with two passports and perpetual singledom, am particularly flexible. His catchphrase I think really rings true, which is, go where you're treated best. And I think that for me is why I've ended up in this situation. I'm treated very well in Israel as a Jew and an Israeli, but I'm not treated well enough by the various standards that I feel I have to want to make my home here anymore. And that comes down to individual behaviour of people on the street or in stores or whatever. And I feel the same in the UK. I don't share enough of the values of the majority of the British people anymore to want to make my home there, but I feel comfortable enough that I'm happy to spend a couple of months a year there. And so in the end, the concept of go where you're treated best for somebody like me means building a suite of places where I'm treated well enough to want to spend a proportion of my time in those countries. And that's something that is quite interesting and I think is going to become much more common. The flip side of this is also that I should be going where I am treated well enough that I'm in a position to be able to give back both to the society I'm in and the other societies that I might go back to. And that for me is a very important part of the notion of identity. What does it mean to be British or Israeli or a Jew or a man or any of these things? What are my obligations towards the people around me and how can I fulfil them best? And I think that for me in the end, the concept of finding the right citizenship and residency for each of us is that we should be putting ourselves in a position where we can treat ourselves and the people around us best as well as be treated best. And if that's one place or many nodes, then so be it. Even if one of those nodes seems to be Heathrow Terminal 5 British Airways Lounge for me. On a lighter note, I got my second vaccination yesterday. 
so I will have my green passport in a week's time so that'll be a new passport for me and hopefully I'll be back in the air fairly soon and we'll see some of you in person. It's been a pleasure and hopefully you'll hear from me again next week. Take care.